you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and can also leave a rating. And I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Before we get started here, let me just remind you of something. I've said this uh, last couple of weeks. If you sent me an email, I promise you I will get to it on a future podcast. Just sit tight and keep listening. I'm hoping to do another sort of podcast dedicated just to answering your uh, listener questions later on this summer. So if you have something you would like to discuss with me on a future podcast, just email it to me at digginoakisland at gmail.com. Now on to today's podcast. Let me start by saying I really am, honestly, just kind of indulging myself a little bit here with this one. Today, I'm going to talk less about Oak Island directly than I ever have before. Today, I'm going to present part one of what will probably be a two-part examination of one of my favorite subjects in all of history, the incredible story of the life and times of Captain William Kidd. This most famous of pirates, who was probably not really a pirate at all, but we'll get to that in a second, led a life that was nothing short of the stuff of Hollywood. Now, I know what you're saying. Dave, don't we at least know now that whatever actually happened there on Oak Island centuries ago probably did not involve Captain Kidd? That's just an old wives' tale, right? One that's been all but disproven by modern researchers. Well, you might be correct saying that. But that's not entirely the point here now, is it? Besides just being a great story to tell, there are two really good reasons why Captain Kidd is the perfect subject for our little Oak Island podcast here. One of those reasons I'm going to save for part two of the series, the end of the show. But the other reason is simply this. Besides being the most famous pirate of all time, the subject of both songs and legends, Captain Kidd is also the original assumed culprit in the investigation into who was responsible for the construction of Oak Island's money pit. He is inextricably linked to the Oak Island mystery and therefore needs to be examined in any endeavor such as ours. And just a little hint regarding that first reason I said I was going to save for part two, he still is very much inextricably linked to the Oak Island mystery. But like I said, we'll get to that when we get to part two of this series. The Oak Island Money Pit was, for decades and decades, really just assumed to be the burial site, the hiding place of Captain Kidd's treasure, or at least one of them. And for good reason, too. Kidd's life and career was not only legendary after his death, but also caused a global sensation during his life. He was executed in 1701. Oh, spoiler alert here. Uh, sorry. Uh, he gets executed at the end of the story, if you didn't know that, but... Uh, so I blew that one. So for people to still be intrigued, really, by his life and by his exploits and fascinated by all the things that uh, that he became famous for a hundred or so years later, I mean, that makes all the sense in the world to me. It's still front of mind, let's be honest, especially people living in these more nautical areas of the world like Oak Island. So how does this all relate back to our subject of the Oak Island mystery? Let me explain. I've spent a lot of time over the life of this podcast talking about that famous Liverpool transcript article you've heard so much about now from me that uh, was published in 1862 and which really helped catapult the Oak Island mystery to international fame. Let me just read you the third paragraph of that article. Quote, 
When the first settlers of the United States came to Chester, which is not far from Oak Island, uh, they brought with them a story that an old sailor, while on his deathbed, stated that he belonged to Captain Kidd's crew and that he helped to bury on an island somewhere in that neighborhood about two million pounds value of treasure, but that he had never dared to avail himself of the secret for fear of the law taking hold of him as a pirate. And it was that story, the story of a dying former pirate who may or may not have ever actually existed, but the story became very popular around that time and around Oak Island. It's that story which pretty much convinced people for decades and decades that if they just kept digging and digging a little further down in the money pit, they would eventually find a pirate's treasure, specifically kids. But truth be told, it wasn't just this mysterious, anonymous, dying pirate who convinced folks Kidd must have buried a huge treasure somewhere in the world. It was also Captain Kidd himself. In the days before his execution, while he was really on death row, Kidd sent a letter to a prominent leader in Parliament essentially pleading for his life, saying he had, quote, lodged goods and treasure to the value of 100,000 pounds, which I desire the government may have benefit of. (laughs) Basically, what he was doing, what he was saying was, if you just let me out of jail, I can lead you to this incredible treasure I have and whose location only I know. I mean, didn't Jack Sparrow kind of say the pretty much the same thing in one of those movies? I mean, it sure seems like it to me. Maybe I'm wrong. But unlike the Pirates of Fiction, William Kidd was never given the chance to prove his claim. And the location of this supposed treasure he had offered up for his life went with the good captain to his grave. Now, it's worth pointing out that Kidd did say this unrecovered treasure was actually located somewhere in the Caribbean. But be that as it may, people have been searching the world over for it ever since 1701. And come on, if Kidd was actually being truthful in his offer to the crown, could he really be bargaining his only buried treasure? I mean, there must have been more somewhere else, right? So since his execution, people all over the world, from Madagascar to the Caribbean to New York, and yes, even Nova Scotia, have been searching for a lost treasure that once belonged to Captain Kidd. The idea of the treasure consisting, the treasure in Oak Island, I mean, consisting of things like the lost manuscripts of Shakespeare or even religious artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, and that, none of that all comes into play in the Oak Island picture for many, many years uh, after the discovery of the money pit. This was assumed to be the work of Captain Kidd. They were all convinced of that. And truth be told, researchers held on to this idea of Kidd's treasure being on Oak Island late into the 20th century, really. So as you can see, if we are going to search for the truth behind the Oak Island mystery, we need to look at the infamous Captain Kidd. And even with all that being said, Kidd's life and his career remains an incredible story. One with twists and turns, soap opera style romance, and even a great nemesis or two. How it hasn't been turned into a movie, or better yet, really a series, I really don't know. I wish I could write, I would write the script and sell it off to somebody. So stay tuned, folks. You'll need some popcorn and a box of Junior Mints, maybe. uh, Because after the break, I'm going to tell you the extraordinary tale of Captain William Kidd. My name is Captain Kidd, as I sailed, as I sailed, oh, my name is Captain Kidd, as I sailed. My name is Captain Kidd, and God's laws I did forbid, and most wickedly I did as I sailed. Now, before I tell you about the life and times of the pirate Captain Kidd, I think we need to first 
talk just a little bit about piracy and privateering, the role they played in the world during kids' time, and really differences between the two. It's a subject that comes up a lot in Oak Island. I'm sure you know a lot about it already, uh, but it's important to define the two practices here for kids' story. During the era of European colonization in the New World, the old world European powers had a knack of getting into little wars with each other. <laughs> Some of them not so little. Those wars, naturally, would spill across the Atlantic to the colonies, turning North America and much of the Caribbean into important battlegrounds of these wars. Also, during the same time, the importing and exporting of goods via sailing ships to and from these colonies in the New World really was the economic boom for Europe's big powers, the tech boom of their era, really. Fortunes were made, and the economies of Europe were never never the same after this. So it's pretty easy to see how that same trade would naturally become a key pillar and therefore also a huge target for any war effort. Now, remember what we have going on here, how this commerce all plays out practically. A typical merchant ship would travel across the Atlantic Ocean carrying textiles, luxury items, and almost always money to the colonies. And then after dropping that all off, that same ship would then fill its hold with things like furs, lumber, tobacco, sugar, those sorts of things, things produced over in the colonies, and then and also money, and then transport that back to Europe. And like I said, most of these ships carried gold or some sort of... Um, some sort of coin or something like that, gold, silver, jewels, that stuff. Uh, they'd carry this stuff to and from their ports of call. These merchant ships or fishing ships, a lot of them too, mostly traveled alone and would often become good targets for pirates and other enemy ships. But during times of war, it became increasingly difficult for navies to defend these merchant ships and economies strained as a result of these ships being captured. Also, truth be told, many navies would let the crews in of their ships kind of in on the loot that they ca might capture themselves from merchants and fishing vessels flying the enemy flag. So they were a lot more interested in attacking things here, really, than defending it. So in an effort to even the score a bit, I guess, since it was increasingly difficult to prevent attacks on merchant ships, at least to any real measurable degree, and also to try and free up naval ships for other duties, like war, uh, countries would hire out private armed vessels to do their own dirty work of capturing merchant ships from enemy countries and seize the goods and money from these merchant ships to keep for themselves. Usually they would give a portion of the loot to the government or perhaps even investors, thus directly aiding in the war effort and the national economy. But the disruption of the trade was really enough. The government was kind of in it for money, um, but they were really in it for the tactical benefits. Uh, these private vessel, uh, vessels would come to be called privateers. They were pri sort of the private paramilitary security force of their time. And for all intents and purposes, they were nothing more than legal pirates. It was a good business, lucrative for both the sailors, the captains, and also investors who backed them because sometimes... Uh, you know, these ventures would need a little capital to get started, you know, just, just, like, just like things nowadays. These ships would be issued a letter of mark from their government, which basically said that they were permitted to board and capture enemy merchant or even military ships. This letter spelled out the portion of whatever goods or money on board the Crown would keep and the portion the privateers would keep. Also, oftentimes they would be paid for turning these captured ships then over to the government rather than keeping it for themselves. They'd actually turn the vessel in. They'd keep whatever they found on it. But as they handed the vessel over, they'd get a little, little kickback. 
Like I said, it was a lucrative money-making business during times of war. A privateering expedition almost always returned huge on its investments. And back then, Europe was more often at war than not, really. So you can see why it was such a big part of economic and military strategy for all the European powers at this time. But it's also easy to see how fine the line can be between this legal business of privateering and the very illegal business of piracy. Pirates and privateers were very much after the very same thing, money. This work of a privateer was not done out of some patriotic zeal for king and country. It was done for money. These sailors risked their lives to live a sort of maverick life on the ocean, you know, a very, very sort of romantic one. They were willing to kill and capture often unarmed merchant sailors, or whoever was necessary, really, all for the singular purpose of making lots of money for themselves. Sounds very much like I'm describing pirates, doesn't it? And therein lies the rub. If you were looking to hire a ship to raid and pillage your enemy, to board and seize everything on board, to strike fear in the hearts of merchants and thus discouraging them from doing their work to help keep their country's economy moving, who better to employ for such a job than pirates? I mean, this is what they do. If you were an investor looking to make a nice return on your investment in a privateering voyage, wouldn't you put your money into somebody who with a proven record of such activities and being successful here? And... If you were a captain of such a ship, and perhaps not a pirate yourself per se, and you were trying to hire a crew for a new privateering voyage so you too could get in on all this nice government cash, who do you think, <laughs> among those applying for this job, would have the best-looking resumes? Yep, that's right. A whole lot of former pirates. So it really is not so hard to see how the lines between piracy and privateer would easily get blurred, how trust would be in short supply in this entire business, and how dishonest dealings on the part of captains, sailors, investors, and the governments would be sort of the normal course of business in all this. And keep in mind, pirates were the organized crime families of their day. They were well-funded, brutal, and often worked with impunity in a generally lawless area of the world. Folks, this was the Wild West meets the 20th century, meets 20th century gangsters, you know. Uh, for governments and the aristocracy to get in bed with these folks was always going to be a disaster. You know, there was no, really no way around that. And think about this. What happened when the war ended? What happened when alliances changed? Those are two things that happened all the time during the 17th and 18th centuries. Well, you can see where I'm going here. Mistrust and double-crossing was the normal course of business between governments and privateers. And into this world stepped an arrogant and headstrong William Kidd. Kidd was most likely born in 1654 in Dundee on the west coast of Scotland. I say most likely because for centuries, many believed he was actually born in 1645 in the town of Greenock over in the east coast of Scotland. Or even some said he was born in Belfast. And this type of ambiguity pretty much describes what we know of his first 30-plus years of life, which is to say, not all that much, really. There are many legends and lots of educated guesses, but precious few facts, confirmed facts, really, of the young William Kidd. For instance, his story usually included, if you're hearing this tale, of something about his father named John Kidd, we think he was named John Kidd, being a Church of Scotland minister or something like that. But that's largely been disproven by contemporary research. 
It looks like we can say with some certainty that his father was indeed a sailor, might even have been a merchant captain himself, and he died at sea when William was very young, forcing the family to be supported financially by charity and that sort of thing. Kidd lived very much off the grid, so to speak, at least from a historian's point of view, you know, up until around 1689 when he starts to appear in public records and then not long after in newspapers and wanted posters. Like so many in his position um, growing up, he probably began a sailor's life at a very young age. He likely spent time on merchant ships as a cabin boy and then a member of the crew. It seems he may have even served in the Royal Navy for some time, although some, I'll be honest, some authors are more sure of that than others. Remember, we're talking about a period of 35 years or so here when we are essentially filling in the blanks of his life. And let's face it, this was the prime of his life we're talking about. Lived during a period of history when the average life expectancy was something around 40 years old. Also, so much of what scholars and researchers actually know about what truly is you know, the bulk of his time on this earth, time between his birth and his meteoric rise to popularity, most of what they know or, or what we've heard about has changed and evolved over the years. When doing the research here, it was hard for me to sift through the legends and even what is now considered you know, disproved scholarship. So you know, it was hard to get to the truth, really. And let's just point out that history truly deplores a vacuum. So you can see this was the perfect situation for legends and tall tales to develop and replace what are huge gaps in actual history. And also, let me offer this disclaimer of sorts before we move on into the part of Kid's life that made him famous. As I continue to tell this tale of the great Captain Kid, I simply cannot say with any certainty if what I am about to relay is actually the truth of what happened. I'll do my best, and I'll try to point out when I'm working with what I think might be legend or sort of sketchy, uh, <laughs> sketchy history, um, rather than, you know, what I'm pretty sure is the actual case of what happened. But just like that line between piracy and privateering can be blurry at best, so too can the line between fact and fiction with regards to any character such as William Kidd. He is one of the greatest stories ever told in all of maritime history, so forgive me also if I default occasionally to the fanciful and swashbuckling. The good captain never wrote his tell-all book. He never had the chance to fill us in on the lurid details of what was an extraordinary life. So at many points along the way, we are honestly relying on nothing more than the word of his enemies, or at best, the word of corrupt politicians who worked against him. History is written by the victor. Remember, dead men tell no tales. History picks up the story of William Kidd in around 1689, when he is a man of roughly 35 years of age. After what has likely been a life spent at sea in one way, shape, or form, he is now apparently one of only a few English crew members serving on a mostly French pirate ship called the Santa Rose, under the command of a captain named Jean Fantine. Now, some people say Santa Rose. I say Santa. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Fantine was a successful, if unremarkable, and not all that popular uh, pirate, capturing Dutch and Spanish ships from the Caribbean and New England to the coast, you know, the west coast of Africa. But he would gain his most dubious sort of fame, uh, thanks solely to what happens next. So let's set the scene. It's 1689, like I said, the Nine Years' War has broken out. 
with France and England now on opposite sides of this global conflict. Fantine pulls the Sante Rose into St. Christopher, which is now known as St. Kitts, and joins in on a land assault of the English colony that's there. While the captain is ashore, Kidd, along with the other English members of the crew, mutiny and attack the few Frenchmen who remain back on the ship. They commandeer the Sante Rose and sail it back to the English-held island of Nevis. Among Kidd's fellow mutineers is a man named Robert Culliford. Now, remember that name. Kidd and Culliford would become sort of the Hamilton and Burr of their day. When they reached Nevis, the ship was rechristened the Blessed William, after King William, the current English monarch. Seems to be just a fortunate coincidence that the king and Kidd both shared the same first name. Kidd is named Captain of the Blessed William. Now, this could be his first captaincy. Uh, again, we don't know much before this. Um, I tend to doubt that, but, uh, you know, some reports say he's elected captain by the crew, while others say he's appointed captain by the governor of the island, a man named Christopher Cordrington. Either way, I think this is, you know, him being named captain is possibly an insight into the man Kid had become by this time in his life. It's hard for me to imagine a governor naming a run-of-the-mill crewman aboard a pirate ship the captain of this newly found prize. Uh, perhaps he had, you know, this whole plot to steal the ship from the French had been Kid's idea all along, so therefore uh, the crew named him. Um, you know, was was he the leader of this patriotic mutiny? We don't really know. Had he perhaps commanded a different vessel of his own in the past? Again, we don't know. Perhaps he'd earned a promotion or two in the Royal Navy. These are things we're never going to know. Anyway, he becomes captain. Kidd and his blessed William become part of Cordrington's new formed fleet of four ships who were given the mission of protecting Nevis and sort of the surrounding small islands from any possible French attack during this war. While putting this fleet together, the governor told the captains and the crews that he wouldn't be paying them but for them to go and find their payment from the French, thus basically encouraging them to start raiding and looting not only French ships, but also French settlements on nearby islands. Sort of informal privateering. With that in mind, Kidd attacked and destroyed the French colony on the island of Marie Galant, uh, which now makes up um, one of the islands in the country of Guadalupe. Uh, Kidd steals a nice little fortune for himself and for his crew. Kidd also apparently expanded his privateering resume just a bit when he captured a French privateer off the coast of New England and turned the ship in for a ransom payment. The Crown recognized his efforts, I think maybe gave him a bonus, and, the, and Kidd's star begins to rise. Apparently, Captain Kidd was so successful that in 1690 he was ordered by the Crown to begin attacking French naval ships. His crew apparently, though, refused this order, but Kidd was insistent. It seems Kidd felt it was his duty to fight for England. But remember, his crew are mostly former pirates. They had no interest in helping the government, including his old friend Robert Culliford, who would soon become a pirate captain himself. While back in the Caribbean, Kidd pulled the Blessed William into dock off the island of Antigua. While Kidd went ashore, Culliford took a page out of the captain's own playbook and stole the Blessed William right out from under him, leaving Captain Kidd more than a little embarrassed and now in desperate need of a new ship. Kidd was then forced to purchase a new boat, which he then named the Antigua, uh, with the idea of getting himself back to New York or Boston, but not before hopefully finding Culliford and getting back his Blessed William. 
However, it doesn't seem Captain Kidd was successful at all in this pursuit um, of the person who is now his new nemesis. Cullerford would remain a thorn in his side, really, for the rest of his life. After his disaster with Cullerford and the Blessed William, it seems as though William Kidd decided maybe it was time to uh, stay on dry land for a bit. And so he settled in New York City, where he tried to become a respectable businessman and a member of high society, or at least, I guess, a pirate's version of respectable, I suppose. Uh, Up to this point, New York had been run by politicians who turned something of a blind eye towards piracy, and thus the city itself became something of a pirate haven. Now, by city, this is a town of like five to 6,000 people, so we're not talking about a big place. Also, we're not really yet in the era when being a pirate was like, you know, the worst of all possible crimes in the mind of the Navy and the King. Also, New York was this sort of far-flung place, and Pirates spent a lot of money and brought in plenty of commerce for the local merchants. Also, many of these colonial leaders, these politicians, were really powerless to stop the pirates from calling their ports home. I mean, they didn't have a security force to get these guys out of here. And like I said, pirates were well organized and armed to the teeth. So they did the best they could and made themselves a little richer along the way. It's quite the corrupt little arrangement, really. Uh, Just the kind of environment for a self-confident and tough guy like William Kidd to thrive. But as I'll explain in just a bit, things were changing in New York and throughout the British Empire. Politics were dividing the city. The now former King of England, King James II, the last Catholic King of England, had been deposed in a conflict called the Glorious Revolution. Uh, I'm sure there's another example of the victors being able to write history here. Uh, And in his place, in King James's place, uh, a new monarchy under the rule of William and Mary was now in power. When Kidd arrived in Manhattan, the entire colony was in the midst of an often violent political struggle between those on either side of this divide. If you really want to learn more about this, I'd suggest looking up something called Leisler's Rebellion. Uh, it's an uprising that was led by a merchant named Jacob Leisler, whose aim was to kick out these supporters of the deposed King James. I mean, having said that, New York, this enti- the entire colony really, during this whole period of rebellion, was a serious mess. But like I said, this is a long story. So if you want to read about Leisler's Rebellion, I suggest you do that. But keep that name Jacob Leisler in mind. Anyway, Kidd essentially takes the side of the old establishment and helps defeat Leisler, who is then, not long after that, executed as a traitor. Kidd also, at the same time, uh, was helping def- to defeat those who, among other changes, were hoping to crack down on what was essentially New York's first organized crime ring. I mean, after all... We are talking about a former pirate here in Kidd. But regardless of what side he took during Leisler's rebellion, he ends up on the radar of politicians in New York and back in London. Keep this in mind as we continue. While living in New York, Kidd met and married a 21-year-old widow named Sarah Bradley Cox Ort. By the time she and Kidd married, Sarah had already been widowed twice. Yep, you heard that correctly. Sarah was 21 years old and already buried two husbands, One of which, the first one who drowned apparently in the mud off Staten Island, was extremely rich, and he passed his money on to his bereaved beloved. The second husband presents something of a soap opera drama. I'm not really sure how exactly this poor fellow met his death, but only a matter of a few days later, Sarah and William were already applying for their own marriage license. Now, this all sounds very suspicious to say the least, and certainly good for a couple of episodes in my new uh, series I'm writing here. Uh, And many accuse the two 
of obviously killing her second husband, but nothing would ever be proven against them. Either way, William Kidd, who was already somewhat famous for his brave adventures, privateering in defense of his country and helping take down a rebellion, was now also filthy rich. Like I said, New York and Captain Kidd made a good match, and the fact that Sarah would so quickly and enthusiastically look to marry Kidd kind of speaks volumes about how well-known and even maybe how well-respected he was in New York at this point. For the next couple of years, Kidd led the life of a successful businessman. I mean, a successful businessman in a really corrupt town. I think he was a merchant captain for a few years, sailing back and forth from New York to Boston, to the Caribbean probably, and back again. Uh, He became close friends with the governor of the colony, a man named Colonel Benjamin Fletcher, who himself had plenty of friendly, oh, what would you call it, business arrangements with the many pirates who frequented the port of New York. Like I said, Kidd certainly took a healthy bite out of the Big Apple, to say the least. He even left his own kind of cool little legacy in the city by helping to build Trinity Church, which is still there in downtown Manhattan and what's now the financial district. The actual physical church that he helped build was burned down in 1776 during the Great Fire of New York, which destroyed somewhere near 25% of all the buildings in the city at the time. But the parish itself remains, thanks in no small part to Captain Kidd. I can only assume Kidd had a uh, rather complex relationship with religion. For the early part of the 1690s, life was good for this man who rose from a poor and unremarkable upbringing somewhere in Scotland to being among the richest and most popular captains in all of the New World. But all that would soon change. He longed for more. Kidd wanted to be more than just a former pirate or privateer turned businessman. He was a man who had fought for his country and he wanted to continue that adventure and not live the life of a money-counting landlubber. At this point in the story, it does seem very hard to believe that he would leave this earth as one of the most notorious and hated pirates on the seven seas. But that's exactly how this story ends. As I briefly mentioned before, when King William III takes the throne of England, you know, the William and William and Mary. So I guess I should say when they take the throne of England in 1689, they usher in a new attitude towards corruption and piracy. As we said, up until then, piracy was largely ignored. And in many cases, politicians use pirates for their own sort of financial advantage. But William and Mary took a very opposite approach to all of this and instructed their government and military to start cracking down on pirates their financial backers, and the politicians who have up until then been turning a blind eye towards their illegal activities, or even taking part in them in some cases. So as you can probably imagine, it was only a matter of time before Captain Kidd's new best pal, Colonel Benjamin Fletcher, the corrupt royal governor of New York, was removed from office and sent packing. He was accused of taking bribes, allowing smuggling of illegal goods, and even granting privateer licenses to people who everyone knew We're just pirates. When it comes to the long history of corrupt politicians running New York, Fletcher was among the first and one of the most corrupt. In his place came the wonderfully named Richard Coote, the first Earl of Bellamont. Now, Bellamont arrives in New York with his primary task being to clean up the city and the surrounding colony of corruption. He's here to end the fraud and malfeasance, root out the pirates, and essentially impose the will of those who join the cause of the defeated and executed Jacob Leisler a few years earlier. Somehow, despite his role in actually defeating Leisler, Kidd ingratiates himself with Bellamon. 
which also probably says something about how powerful and influential he had become during his time in Manhattan. I mean, Kid and his wife, well, more like his wife, really, were fabulously wealthy, and Kid was apparently quite the character around town as well. It's not hard to see how a newly arrived politician would welcome their friendship a bit, despite maybe their past political decisions or mistakes. Anyway, there's not much to go on about how this relationship between Kidd and Bellamont came to be. Uh, but when the governor needed a man to help him crush piracy in the colonies, he turned to the guy he called, quote, trusty and well-beloved Captain Kidd. Now, remember, at this time, the British Navy is heavily involved in this war with France. So if Bellamont is serious about crushing piracy in New York and throughout the colonies, the Navy probably isn't going to be much help here. So Bellamont and a local businessman named Robert Livingston partnered up with Captain Kidd to find an alternative to the Navy and maybe make a lot of money. They hatch a plan to get Kidd a ship and a crew and set him loose on pirates. And also the French. I mean, why not? The three men turn to London for financial backing and eventually, in January of 1696, they receive a commission from the king and parliament to attack pirates and any enemy vessels such as the French, but also specifically to not attack anyone deemed friendly to the crown. Basically anyone sailing under an allied flag. Specifically, this contract commands Kidd to, quote, not in any manner offend or molest any of our friends or allies, their ships or subjects. This might be an issue later on, just saying. Now, this entire enterprise was, at its very essence, a money-making business arrangement, and one that wasn't a particularly great deal for Kidd, if I'm honest. His cut and his crew's cut of the booty was much less than that of most privateer arrangements. Everyone involved in this, the king, the governor, the financial backers, some of which, by the way, were among the richest and most powerful men in London and would also remain anonymous throughout all of this. All of these people were expecting to make plenty of money off this adventure. Also, just, just on those backers, their anonymity speaks a little bit in my mind, at least, to how shady this deal might all have been, you know, <laughs> perceived or maybe really was. So one has to question, why would Kid ever get involved in all this? I mean, this was a guy with more money than he could ever possibly spend in his lifetime. He was rich, comfortable, this beautiful waterfront New York mansion and a wonderful wife. And he already had his fair share of adventure and notoriety in his past. Why risk his neck and his reputation hunting pirates? I mean, think about it. A hell of a lot can go wrong here. He can fail to catch or kill any notable pirates. He could be killed or hurt fighting these ruthless men himself. He could be caught by the French Navy, double-crossed by his financiers. The list goes on and on. When you get down to it, I think there are really a few possible, possible reasons why he would want to do this and why he would get involved here and even hatch this plan. One, let's face it. What choice did Kidd really have here? He was a former pirate, a friend and a backer of the now disgraced and deposed former governor, and now a man with more than one lucrative business interest to protect and keep in mind. How could he turn down the new king and governor asking him to help protect and defend the colonies and the country while also offering to pay him in return? Two, it seems more, like, more than likely that Kidd might have really wanted this. 
he wanted an opportunity just like this. Like I said, he may have served in the Navy already. In fact, he may have been in London looking to get himself involved in the Navy somehow during all this. Also, many recent scholars think it was very much a goal of his from a young age to someday command his own naval ship, or at the very least command a serious privateering vessel sent to fight for the king. I think Kidd might have been after the kind of glory one could only really gain from serving in the military during a time of war. Remember, this is a guy who only a few years earlier had led a mutiny against a French captain, so it's not too far-fetched to think he might have been something of a patriot, again, with kind of a complicated relationship with his own patriotism, probably. Um, another reason, Kidd was very sure of himself. William Kidd would have a hard time finding somebody who he would call braver or stronger than William Kidd. If anyone was going to save the country, he was the only man for the job, at least in his mind. He was that kind of person. I say this because I don't want to paint a picture here of William Kidd as some humble, you know, king-loving patriot. Sure, some of that might have been in his makeup, but it paled in comparison to his arrogance and his self-assuredness. Certainly, he must have recognized the serious risk and a more than minor potential for a total disaster here in this plan. But I do have a hard time believing Kidd thought any of that could ever happen. Not to him. Not with Captain Kidd in command. Finally, and this is only me talking here, we have to wonder if Kidd wasn't in some small part out on a mission of revenge of some sort. Uh, sure, he was once a pirate and likely had his fair share of business dealings with other pirates while in New York. But he was also well and truly betrayed by a pirate. Don't forget, in an effort to use his ship and crew to help Britain fight the French, members of his own crew, led by a man he thought was his friend, instead double-crossed him, stole his ship, and then turned themselves to a life of piracy. Somewhere in the back of his head was Kidd hoping to find his old nemesis Robert Culliford and dish out a little payback here? It seems very possible to me that that was the case. So with the king's blessing, Kidd and his investors had a new 287-ton warship built at the Castle Shipyard in Deptford, which is on the Thames right next to Greenwich in London. Uh, it was christened the Adventure, and since it was a galley, it became more famously known down the ages as the Adventure Galley. Kidd played a major role in the design and outfitting of this new ship, uh, including the interesting idea of adding groups of long oars down both sides of the vessel so he could have a kind of a tactical advantage over any enemy ships which might be stalled in calm winds. When the adventure was complete, she was a 124-foot, three-masted vessel which could carry as many as 34 cannons and a crew of over 150 sailors. Now it was up to the captain to hire that crew and outfit this new vessel. Right from the get-go, his new venture started to get, well, complicated, I guess is a good word. For one thing, this was an expensive job hiring sailors, buying provisions and ammunition, that kind of thing. And it seems kids' investors were not always prompt with the cash when he needed them to be. At some point in all this, Kid actually sold off his ship, the Antigua, uh, you know, the one he had to buy after Culliford stole out his Blessed William. Uh, he sold it off to have some cash of his own to invest in this project, so it seems like he was really kind of all in here. In London, Kid really was up to his neck in debts and promises. 
More investors had to be brought in, some of them not quite as legitimate or maybe, I don't know what's the word, trustworthy as the others. Kind of all got a little shady here. At the end of February 1696, Kidd and his crew of the adventure were ready to put to sea and begin the mission that would come to define Kidd's life and place him forever in the history books. But before they even made it out of London, Kidd got himself into quite a bit of trouble. Let me just read you this paragraph from Richard Zack's book, The Pirate Hunter, The True Story of Captain Kidd. It's a great book. Read it if you're interested in the subject. Uh, Quote, after months of being jerked around with promises from Livingston and Bellamond, Kidd was finally about to depart aboard his fine ship, which dwarfed almost all of the thousand merchant ships around. Never shy on his last night in London, Kidd downed rums with the Royal Navy captains at Dockside Taverns and bragged that his commission directly from the king entitled him to not have to dip his flag to any other ship. Now, let me explain. It was actually a law at the time for a ship to lower its flag and salute um, if it happens to pass a naval ship which carried the king's ensign. No matter the size or shape of the two vessels, that was sort of courtesy and uh, to, the, to the naval vessel, to the king's ship, and it was also the law. Uh, apparently, the king of one of these very same ships, a yacht called the Catherine, overheard Kidd's barroom braggadocia and uh, was determined to make Kidd and his crew show the respect due to the Royal Navy and, like I said, required by law. The next morning, Captain Kidd and his crew of around 65 men at the time made their way down the Thames. Predictably, they passed the Catherine. And also predictably, the adventure did not salute. As was the custom, the Catherine fired off a warning shot. This was sort of a, a, a way, a sort of the customary way, essentially, to demand the salute from a passing ship. Maybe, you know, maybe they weren't paying attention. They didn't realize you were there or something like that. Or it was also just you sort of beeping your horn, you know. But instead of saluting, it seems some of Kid's crew <laughs> dropped their shorts and mooned the Catherine. A day later, when the adventure was just off the West Coast, just out of the Thames, uh, he passed a decent-sized group of more naval warships, and again, the adventure did not salute. Only this time, he wasn't dealing with some tiny little yacht and a cranky captain. He was instead dealing with a sizable fleet of ships armed to the teeth. Perhaps already hearing of the adventure's little show the previous day, a little show of disrespect, Captain Stewart, who was in command of the HMS Duchess, fired a shot straight across Kid's bow, forcing Kid to stop, and then Stewart boarded the adventure. Kid puffed out his chest, I'm sure, and waved around his letter of mark in the captain's face. But Stewart responded by impressing 30 of Kid's best sailors into service in the Royal Navy. Uh, 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 Pressing people in the Navy meant you forcibly made them serve in the Navy. <laughs> uh, this left Kid without a crew sufficient enough to continue on with his mission. So with that, the adventure was forced to turn back around and head to London. It wasn't the first time William Kidd would be defeated by his own arrogance. And also, it wouldn't be the last. Kidd went to see his friend in London, a man named Admiral Russell, who was high up in the Royal Navy, to ask, well, probably more likely to beg, really, for his help with this self-made disaster he had here. It took some time. I mean, there was a war going on after all. But at the end of March, Russell ordered Captain Stewart to return Kidd's men to the crew of the adventure. And finally, Kidd and his ship were on their way. And this time, they would make it out of England 
with their pants on and without any embarrassing issues. But this entire mooning incident would not be the last time Kid rubbed the Royal Navy the wrong way. This was probably not his best idea. The adventure was headed to New York City. On their way across the Atlantic, Kid captured a French fishing vessel off the Canadian coast and turned it in for a nice little bounty. So far, so good, really. Uh, he, he, he triumphantly then pulled his new ship into New York Harbor. Let's just say he wasn't very subtle about it either. He then set about trying to hire more sailors to fill out his crew. But quickly, that task seemed much harder than he had initially expected. You see, Kid was incredibly proud of this new commission of his. He was going to fight for his country and to rid the seas of criminals. Seems kind of weird since he was one, but neither here nor there. You see, this commission that Kid had gained for himself, this letter of mark or this contract, was not a normal one. I'm not really sure any privateer vessel up to that point, or maybe even after Kid, had ever received a commission from the Crown to hunt down pirates specifically. The part about attacking the French and other enemy vessels, that was pretty standard stuff for privateers. But the pirate part was very, very different. Kid, who already thought he was something else, must have thought he was very special indeed, and that this mission he was on was also very special. Why wouldn't sailors of New York think the same thing? Well, the answer is pretty simple, really. Money. Without getting too far into the details of how this all worked, essentially the crew would split roughly a quarter of their loot that they captured, while the various investors, as well as the king, mind you, would then split the rest, the remaining 75%. Keep in mind, the average privateer crew at the time got a way better share than that. And let's face it, this is New York, the pirate capital of the colonies. Most of these guys that Kid was trying to hire were themselves pirates, and pirates could care less how special Kid thought his commission was. And on a pirate ship, you didn't split the loot with anyone but your fellow crew members. Also, let's face it, hiring pirates to go catch pirates? I mean, in some way it kind of makes sense for Kid, but not so much for these sailors. What happens when this mission's over? Then what? Where do you go for work after that, right? So you could see why Kid struggled for weeks and weeks trying to find a crew to no avail. By August... Kid had decided to make a small alteration to his deal with his investors. Well, okay, maybe it wasn't very small at all. Uh, he decided on his own that the crew would keep three quarters of the booty and the investors would get one quarter. At least that's what he would tell these guys he was trying to hire. He essentially reversed the terms. <laughs> Amazing. And as you can probably imagine, it worked. He was able to hire a crew and he was able to get on with his mission. So on September 6th, 1796, the Adventure Galley, with its crew of 150 and Captain William Kidd at the helm, pulled out of New York Harbor on a mission to hunt pirates. With all the requisite fanfare for a man with an ego the size of kids, he left his home city to begin what it was, he was convinced was his glorious mission. After already completely pissing off both his rich and politically influential investors, and don't forget, also the Royal Navy. It's not hard to see how and why this all went south in a hurry. But that, folks, is the story for part two.
So that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Like I said, our next episode is not going to be part two of this Captain Kid story. I'm doing a little bit more research on that. So look for Captain Kid's, uh, <laughs> the continuation of Captain Kid's tale, uh, maybe two or three episodes from now. We have another episode coming up next week. Um, please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. That helps get the word out on us. More listeners, the better. You can also follow us on Facebook. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Also Twitter, at Diggin' Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there. That would be much appreciated. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at island at gmail.com. Keep in mind, if you do send me an email and you do not want it read on a future podcast, please make mention of that because otherwise I'll probably likely just answer it right on one of these shows. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island. Thank you.